1: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Please note, this podcast is not suitable for children.
2: You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. This episode, recorded in early March, is released to coincide with the National Stalking Awareness Week. I talked to Laura Richards, international expert on domestic violence, stalking and sexual violence, and also founder of Paladin, the National Stalking Advocacy Service. And Zoe Dronfield, activist and survivor of stalking and horrific violent assault.
3: I'm Laura Richards. I'm a criminal behavioural analyst. I'm the founder of Paladin National Stalking Advocacy Service. And I also worked at New Scotland Yard on their sexual offences section and the homicide prevention unit.
2: So tell me a little bit about Paladin and where and at what point you decided there was a need for a national stalking advocacy service.
3: Well, there was a very high profile case which happened in 2005 when I was at New Scotland Yard. And it was the murder of a beautiful young woman called Claire Bunnell. And it happened in Harvey Nichols. The national and international press picked up on the case and my boss at New Scotland Yard asked me to review the case. Any issues for us, Laura? Can you, and I was running the homicide prevention unit at the time, can you review this case? And so I did a quick review and realised we'd had a lot of contact with this young woman, Claire, and my colleagues didn't understand the stalking behaviour. So you mean
2: she'd been calling the police kind of going, I'm worried about this guy, can someone help?
3: She had. She was yeah. terrified that he was going to kill her because he threatened to kill her. And she had also told Harvey Nichols' store. Now, the mother, Trisha Bernal, I ended up meeting at a conference and she talked out for the first time about her daughter being murdered. And I went up and spoke to her afterwards because I was, I was so moved by what she said. I knew it could be one of my friends. It could have mm-hmm. been my mum stood there. And I just said to her, I'm so sorry about what happened to your daughter. We we should have done more. And, she and you looked were at me.
2: working with the police at the time. You were in the police service.
3: I was in New Scotland Yard at the time. Yeah. Some of my colleagues said, don't go and speak to her. Really? Because the Trisha was pushing for answers and she wanted to know what we did. And it was my human part that connected yeah, with absolutely. her. That could be anyone's mother. And she has a right to ask what we did yeah. to try and protect her daughter. So she ended up just giving me this massive hug. And she said, are you for real, Laura? And I said, yes, we should have done more. And I said to her, I'll try and help you in whatever way I can to understand what happened. So that case really did move me. I met Tricia and I ended up spending quite a lot of time with her and another mother, Carol Faruqi, whose daughter Rana was stalked and murdered. And because I was reviewing lots of murders, I really saw that there were so many cases that colleagues with the best intentions just didn't understand stalking was about fixation and obsession and we should have been doing more. Now, looking at the legislation, there was the Harassment Act and I realised the legislation harassment, you know, is something much lesser than stalking. And so looking at a lot of cases, I realised that the legislation wasn't fit for purpose. We didn't have professionals that were trained and women were being murdered.
2: Because I guess it's like a lot of things, it's on a spectrum, right? And how do you legislate for the whole spectrum?
3: Well, I think the key thing is that the minute you know you've got a stalking case, you know it's a patterned crime. So there's going to be other things. And what police were doing And still do is they deal with the incident and majority of the time there is this whole history and yet each time everyone's taking things in isolation so they don't see this pattern of behavior and they don't realize that fixation and obsession is very different from someone who's just being a nuisance. So that those cases, I mean, there were many of them, sadly. There was Julia Pemberton as well in, in Thames Valley. And the more I was reviewing cases, I realized, and listening to the mothers and piecing things together, I realized that we needed to do more and started a law reform campaign. And the law reform campaign was really born out of listening to lots of victims' experiences. And I started speaking out in the media as well as working in Parliament. And that's, in fact, where we met Edwina, Um, At the start of the stalking law reform campaign and realized we needed to change law, but also raise awareness and educate people. And the more I spoke out in the media, of course, hundreds of victims started contacting me. Please help me, Laura. Please help me. And I realized I couldn't deal with all the cases. And that's where the genesis of Paladin came from, because I always said we needed specialist case workers. I'm one person. You know, right now I've got over 10,000 emails on my system where people reach out to me. And that's exactly why I created Paladin, the National Stalking Advocacy Service. And it's still the only service for high-risk victims nationally. And, you know, in America, for example, there's 8 million victims who are stalked at least, and they have nothing. So this really is a group of, you know, victims. And we know media and technology really does create uh, you know, a push-button way of stalking people. And yet so many times the victims are failed and they're not being understood. And that's really where Paladin comes in.
2: Yeah, because I think um, I was really struck. So when we met back in the day... Um, you know, legislation came in to bring our stalking laws in line with Scotland's. Is that right? They were a bit ahead of the curve on this. The
3: stalking had had no, no legislation at all in our and in
2: England and Wales.
3: In well, Scotland had no legislation for stalking cases, no right. harassment law. So. And Moulds' case was instrumental, really, and that's where the, the Scottish stalking law came from. Okay. But I looked internationally, uh, everyone's legislation. California were, of course, the first state and America the first country to criminalize stalking. Okay. Okay. And you would understand why California, because all the celebrities are there. Yeah, uh, That law for me wasn't fit for purpose either. So I had to scope who was doing what all across, not like UK wise, looking at Scotland, but also internationally to figure out, is there something that we can learn from? And in fact, we ended up creating a new piece of legislation, which I still think is is world leading.
2: Brilliant. And, and you were behind that
3: absolutely. I mean, and with lots of other campaigners, and the the key part of the campaign was really putting the victim's voice at the centre of it. So Tricia Bernal spoke out, I mean, many other victims and bringing them into Parliament. The all party parliamentary stalking law reform campaign was an inquiry that had never been done before. But parliamentarians in both houses listened to evidence across a couple of months. And listening to victims talk and families bereaved, put parliamentarians in, in, in touch with the problem and you could hear a pin drop when Trisha gave evidence and so um, law change happened relatively quickly and yeah. I helped draft the law as well sitting with the lawyers and then I've been training on it ever since.
2: Exactly so that was going to be my next question because of course legislation can come in but then it's really important that the police know what laws have changed and that they actually then have the expertise and the understanding to be able to operate on the front line and out in communities to be able to really, and, 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 and so you started, you realized there was a gap there, right. And then started training the police through Paladin.
3: Yeah. I mean, I'd say it was a chasm, you know, I always said, and, and all the parliamentarians that were on the, the group, we recommended to the prime minister, there needed to be funding to train and that it should be mandatory. But that didn't happen. So it meant that you have a law coming in. No one's trained on it. And so Paladin, we invested a lot of time. In fact, I use some of Paladin's money to train police. You just think about that. That's crazy. A charity mm. where we're having to fundraise to pay for the staff and bringing in independent stalking advocacy caseworkers, but we're also having to pay to train the police. So we've constantly been trying to catch up and with the revolving door of police officers, and it's not just police, it's the Crown Prosecution Service, mm. it's judges, it's magistrates. And this is where Scotland got things right with the coercive control law. I mean, I led on the st- on the coercive control law reform campaign as well because that's a pattern of behaviour and that was a big elephant in the room. And learning from the stalking law, bringing in the coercive control law. But again, there wasn't uh, mandated training or funding for training. Scotland got the funding and the law change, but they did all their training beforehand, and it makes such a huge difference because otherwise you're you can have the best legislation, but it's underused, and people don't understand the dynamics and certainly the psychological behaviours of stalking that it's online and offline. So the investment in training was something that that Paladin's been doing. You know, we have independent stalking advocacy caseworkers, university accredited training, and I still spend a lot of time in classrooms even now trying to train people and that's the law came in in 2012 it's now 2020 mm. and we still have a big gap of professionals but not can, being trained.
2: Can you help um, our listeners to understand the statistics um, sort of behind stalking and you know how many people sadly end up killed and also I'd be interested to know how often, because I presume or know that mainly it's men stalking women, but of course um, uh, not only have I been stalked, but my husband has also been stalked by a woman. So I'd be interested to know the statistics behind the sort of gender side of things as well.
3: Sure. I mean, like anything, you bring in a new law and unfortunately the Home Office didn't categorise the crime to then flag it to count across police services, how many stalking cases there were. So we're still catching up, would you believe, with trying to identify how prevalent stalking is. It's estimated that it's over a million people every year. The lion's share of that, the majority is women being stalked by men. But that's an estimate. Most victims don't even use that word stalking. They're described behaviours. And if you don't have a professional saying, hang on, that sounds like stalking, or I need to, you know, Call Paladin. They may not even know that we exist, and therefore that case can be missed. And it could be just seen as a criminal damage offence, or it can be seen as you know something much interfering with a motor vehicle, something much lesser. And they're not joining up the pattern. So we still have to be circumspect about the numbers. But I can tell you, whenever I interact with people, even if it's a training session, I get multiple disclosures that it's happened to the professionals in the room. They just. Mm think that stalking happens to celebrities. So the estimates are very conservative, in effect. And when we're talking about the murders, because again, most cases, when you see them reported in the media, the word stalking isn't used. And so it's very misleading. There was the case recently up in Nottingham of um, Janet uh, Scott, who was stalked and murdered by Simon Meller. Now, I was asked by Nottingham Probation to go in and train the staff because that murder happened. She was the second woman that he killed. He came out having killed a woman called Pearl Black, coercively controlled her, then she separated, then he stalked her, then he killed her. He goes to prison for that. Someone decides to allow him out early on licence. He starts a new relationship with Janet. This to me is, you know, I review so many of these cases where people just don't pick up these patterns he is on license, but the probation officer doesn't understand the stalking. He says he's going to kill Janet. She reports it. Now, we now we know that one in two stalkers, when they've had a relationship with someone, if they make a threat, will act on it. He kills her. Then there's sort of a, an inquiry phase, and that's just been reported upon. But too often, people just don't pick up that patterning. It wasn't reported as a stalking-related murder, so you miss it. But there are now, I mean, I wrote a report called uh, Findings from the Multi-Agency Homicide Reviews, which that was in 2003, and I reported that it's about 50% of murders happen on separation where there's stalking behavior, but that was 2003, so before people were even recording the stalking. Uh, Dr. Jane Monkton smith reports it in 2017 being, out of something like 376 murders, stalking and coercive control are prevalent in 94% of them. So, again, if you don't have people identifying it, it gets hidden in the murders. If the media don't report and use that language, it's stalking, but yet they describe the behaviours that can be hidden. And we're at a pandemic proportion right now of murders. We're at a five-time high of women being murdered in domestic violence situations, and I would estimate most of them are coercive control-related cases, pre-separation, then the victim separates, then they're stalked. And it's normally men... It's male violence we're talking about, killing women, hunting women, stalking women, feeling entitled. If I can't have you, no one can. Yeah. But that's not to say men aren't stalked because they are. But my experience of working many cases where that has been the case, yes, there are some men who are stalked by women and some of them, those women, are dangerous And some of those men are fearful for their lives and quite rightly so, but they are a much smaller proportion. Normally, if you get men being stalked, they're much more concerned about their reputation or their business or something that's non-physical. And so there is a difference between, you know, men and women when they're stalked and the reality because of men and the physicality and the physiology, you know, and the threats that come with it and that entitlement. Women are terrorised and being terrified. They're telling the police and we know through some work I'd, Paladin did with Vice that you know between 2015 and 17 there were at least 66 women who reported to the police that they were being controlled and then stalked and then they were murdered after they reported it. So again, it's it's really hard to get a handle on on the numbers. But what I do know is that stalking is the most dangerous type of behavior, fixation, obsession. You've still got people joking about stalking and not taking it seriously.
2: And I'm really pleased to say that we have Zoe Dronfield here today with us um, in the studio. And Zoe, could you describe what happened to you and also the part that sort of Paladin played in your sort of journey through what you've been through?
4: In 2014, I was nearly murdered by an ex-partner. I had been in a relationship with him for about a year, and he his behaviour started to change. He was drinking, um, not going to work, and this was around the children. So I was ending the relationship.
2: How many children do you have? Two children. And what age were they at the time?
4: They were eight and four at the time. His behaviour had changed, so I'd asked him to go, and you know, yeah, he wasn't staying at mine anymore. He went back to his parents, and. That's when he started to act really bizarrely. I suppose his, his, his behaviour completely changed then because then he started to really track what I was doing so he would know where I was all the time. He was then calling me all the time. And so I, in the end, I said to him, look, I don't want to ha- be in a relationship at all. So I'd completely thought I could just tell him that was it. It was over. Um, he didn't accept that. So that's when he kind of upped the ante. I suppose now I, I'm talking like with hindsight, where at the time I'm, I was just going through these motions and I didn't realize what, what was actually happening to me. I didn't really understand domestic violence and certainly didn't understand stalking.
2: Yeah. You never think it's happening to you. Yeah, exactly.
4: I'm not your perfect victim. You know, I'm, I'm a strong person. I'm a businesswoman. I'm busy. I've got two children and I was just not accepting his behavior. So I was like, right, you need to leave me alone. Mm. But then he started to What I now know is stalk me, and he was contacting me on every platform, calling me, turning up at my house, banging on the doors. He was drunk. He'd have friends bring him round. And I was contacting the police, and they weren't really helping at all. They were basically saying, well, he hasn't really done anything, so there's nothing we can do.
3: Just to make it clear, when she was reporting, the law was in place. Yeah, but there wasn't much... But there wasn't knowledge. much training yeah. and, and okay. knowledge. And this is exactly the point yeah. that when victims are uh, talking to the police, they're not experts on what's happening to them. They're just describing yeah. the situation and they're reliant on them, the police, knowing the laws and knowing what they're yeah. doing to funnily protect. funnily enough, the
2: police hadn't read Hansard that day.
3: <laughs> there you go. All the stalking legislation, yeah. you know, 018 of 2012 is the Home Office Circular for any law enforcement personnel listening, so please read it. Because there's very clear, practical points to prove. And I sat there writing it with the police officer, with the home office lawyers to make it practical. But of course, if it doesn't make contact with the real world, then you know women like Zoe are going in in good faith, thinking the police mm. know what they're talking about and putting their lives in their hands.
2: Right, so you made the calls. They weren't particularly but helpful. you also
4: think that when you're making the call, that each time you make the call, that that's being logged somewhere. So they know that when you call again, it's like the fifth time you've called or the sixth time you've called yeah, you would you know, have thought. And then they're picking up on the fact that you keep on calling about this guy and it's becoming unbearable. When he was turning up at the house, I had the police come out to the house and he was leaving me voicemails and they, they would go from being, I love you, baby, I'm sorry. And then it would be, Zoe, if you don't open the door, I'm coming through the door. And then it would be, I'm going, I'm going. He was pretending to kill himself. And I now know, after working with Laura, that that's a prerequisite to homicide. So I was in a huge amount of danger. I didn't realise that at the time. However, I played these to the police officers that arrived and their response was just unbelievable, really, because they just they didn't take those voicemails as evidence. And they were making jokes with me, like, oh, you've got a nice kitchen, oh, you need to oh find yourself God. a nice boyfriend. Oh, God. Yeah, and it was just cringe. I was like, seriously, you know, I'm... Calling me for, for my life. Yeah.
2: And you're yeah. complimenting me on my kitchen. Yeah, exactly. Giving me and dating the, advice.
4: And the thing is, I was angry, I wasn't fearful. I was angry and something that I'm going through now with the police because I'm not happy with the way that they dealt with things is that I I know that they've raised that. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't saying that I was fearful. Well, no, I'm, I'm not a perfect victim. I, I didn't know that also he is a serial perpetrator. Right. So all of that historic information should have been somewhere, but nobody was picking that up either. So even from my call number one, they should have picked up that actually... We now know that there's 16 of the victims.
2: Oh, right. And they were sort of, were they in the system? I presume they would have been in the system. Most
4: of them were on fast response with the police. Okay, so they were in the system
2: somewhere. It's just that hadn't been flagged to you when you called them to complain about his behaviour. And
4: actually, one of those victims, 10 years prior to me, is a serving police officer for West Midlands Police. Right. And he was actually incarcerated for harassment back then because they didn't have the stalking law back then and there were many different charges that were actually dropped because of how the police dealt with her as well mm. and obviously they were employers as well. What chance have the rest of us got if they can't look after their own? Yeah.
2: So things started escalating with him. The police weren't being hugely helpful. And then what what happened?
4: I mean, I just got exasperated with actually contacting the police. And I just thought, I'm going to meet him and talk sense into him. And if I meet him and see him face to face and just say, look, I'm not having this. So I did. And we went out for dinner. And you know what? It was fine. It was fine. And I, I thought he was getting it. He was understanding that his behavior was outrageous. And... I agreed to go back to mine he he because he wasn't working he'd got these interviews for a a job uh, at Jaguar or something and um he was like I want to show these emails so we'll go back and have a glass of wine and you know I just thought that's fine I mean at at no point did I think I was in danger
2: no you didn't feel scared no no no.
4: I mean why would I they don't walk around saying I'm going to kill you on there yeah (laughs) so we went back to mine and I sat with him and talked to him for quite some time and I was saying you know I was angry I was still angry and I was trying to still get through to him I was like yeah you know I understand that you've got these and it's great to see that you've you've got this interview set up but actually that doesn't change anything Mm. and the fact is that you've still done all these things so I kind of said yeah well we'll see how things go we don't just switch back to where we were obviously all of this stuff has happened in between and I mean prior to that meeting with him he have smashed my my side door which was another incident which the police turned up and actually the police arrested him for criminal damage and for smashing your door for, for smashing my door yeah and I'd said that I was get, I was pursuing that conviction because I just thought well it, hopefully that was teach him a lesson you know all of these things now when I look back I think oh my god you know like I was putting myself in more and more danger that anger or whatever it is within these type of people that's building in him so he's wanting to teach me a lesson whereas I'm thinking oh well he'll understand the criminal damage I'm not going to accept that he's done that to my door anyway so I went and met him and I I had this conversation with him and yes
2: you're back at your house back at my house children in the house no children are
4: their father's And I'd won a bottle of champagne at work and uh, we shared this bottle of champagne. And, you know, just talking, it was fine. And he was agreeing with everything. I mean, with hindsight, when I look back, it was probably me doing a lot of the talking. So whether or not he was sitting there, I don't know whether this stuff is premeditated in these kind of people, you know, Mm. because who knows? I'm not even going to try and understand him, you know, that's one thing I don't do. And I went to bed and then the next thing I remember is him... I would just remember thuds to the side of my head. In fact, I think he'd asked me for money. He'd, he'd come in and, first of all, asked me for money, and I said no. And then the next thing I remember, it was dark, and I remember a thud to my head. And it's the re- weirdest thing, because I kind of had an, I, I just went, what are you doing that for, in, the, in a normal voice? But I'd ricocheted from one side of the bed to the other, and then the rest is a blur. I mean, I, there was just thuds raining down on me, and I just must have blacked out. Then I remember um, coming round and I was slumped over the side of the bed on the other side from where I was actually sleeping. And I looked down at my hands and they were covered in blood. The bed was covered in blood, I've got white sheets. They were completely red with blood. My arms, I mean, I could feel my head was like swollen, uh, enormous, and I just thought, oh my God, I've got to get out of here. And I looked over, he was the other side of the bed and he had a meat cleaver and he was like doing a chopping action to his wrists saying, "Don't we're going together, babe, don't worry. And I just had this like, oof, adrenaline. I just thought, I'm not going anywhere. I've got two children. And so I was like, I'm going to go downstairs and get a glass of water. And I managed, I have no idea how, (laughs) I managed to get down the loft stairs because we were in the loft. I managed to get down the loft stairs down the next flight of stairs i've got to get to the landline because he'd taken my mobile from me um i went into the lounge picked up the landline off the cradle pressed 999 and i thought if the call connects then the police will because they'll see that i've called or all these multiple yeah. times before and um he came in so i threw the phone on the 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 sofa and uh, he just basically walked me back up the stairs, and then...
2: So he was calm, still holding the meat cleaver?
4: I don't recall no. what he, what he, whether he, he took was whether He took me back upstairs. And then I remember pleading with him, and there's a 13-minute call, with um, a 999 call that he'd made, that I'm in the background pleading with him for my life, saying, I'm dying, please call me an ambulance. And so I don't know whether... So I now know that in between that time where I was blacked out or whatever, I think he thought he had actually killed me because he'd then run a bath of water and the knives and the meat cleaver were in the bath actually. So, um, so he was cleaning the weapons. So I think he thought he could get away with it actually. Really? I think if he calls the ambulance, I've come round, I'm, I'm, I'm now around, I'm not dead. And so he
2: had called. He'd also called the he, ambulance.
4: He called the ambulance. Yeah.
2: Right.
4: So thinking I mean, you
2: were dead, and then you I think, came. No, round. I think
4: he. I think he thought I was dead previously, which is why I was cleaning the weapons. Right. But then when I came round at the side of the bed. Okay. I think he then thought I've got a chance of getting away with this. Right. Because he'd also messaged my friends on my phone, on WhatsApp, saying I okay. They didn't even make sense messaged, he had a conversation with one of my friends, you know, I mean, just crazy.
2: So an ambulance arrived?
4: Yeah, and he must have opened the door, he must have unlocked the door, but then when they arrived, we were downstairs, I was naked from the waist down, I don't know how that, or what happened there. Um, He was lying on the floor with his eyes rolling in his head, however he'd got up and let them in or he already didn't lock the door so that they could get in so it's just bizarre um on the call he had said that we had an argument and there were knives involved so obviously they the ambulance people had to turn up with the police and then I just remember being stretchered out of the um out of the property and hit, uh, them just saying Zoe 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 with a Zoe and I and then I remember them talking to me about pain what level of pain are you in and then the next thing I remember is being in A&E and I could hear him in the bay next to me. So they'd taken... So he...
2: That's right. The police hadn't... They found meat cleavers and knives mm. and they didn't think that maybe it would be prudent to take him to the station. So All he was right. in... So he's in the bay next to you in hospital. Mm-hmm. And it might sound like a stupid question, but your reaction, I imagine, was horror and terror yeah and so at what point did anything give you know so so what next you're in hospital you're trying to recover
4: yeah I mean
2: (sighs) and were you able to say he did it you know at what point were you trying to communicate to these people that the guy who tried to kill you was sat in the bay next to you in hospital pretending to help you recover
4: yeah I don't even think that I It was like I was in a nightmare. It was like it wasn't happening. It was a surreal. It wasn't as if I wasn't making any coherent decisions. No. I mean, I had a bleed on the brain, so.
2: Yeah. So where did it go from there? How long were you in hospital for? And at what point did then the police side of things kick in?
4: So, I mean, I was in hospital for two weeks. I had 15 separate injuries, I had bleed on the brain, I'd lost two pints of blood, I had a stab wound to my neck, which was a, a millimetre from my jugular, had that I'd hit that vein, I would have had four minutes to live, had stab wounds to my left hand, b- the back of my left hand, which are defence wounds, I have had a snapped right arm, cracked eye socket, broken nose, and then obviously my face was completely and utterly disfigured, slash, slash wounds to my chin, my torso. So I spent two weeks in the hospital. They were doing um, like psychological tests and stuff. And My memory, you have three sets of memory. You have like your short-term instant memory, you have your medium-term memory, and you have your long-term memory. My medium memory was a struggle. But then actually, while I was lying in my hospital bed recovering, I was then visited by an ex-partner who turned up and left an envelope on the end of the bed which were actually court papers he had gone and got an ex party hearing at family court to then obtain custody of my daughter so I wow again bolt upright in my bed like what go and get my laptop both my arms arms are bandaged and I was like get my laptop I need to write to the judge this is ridiculous who the hell does this at this time you know the, the You know, it just beggars belief. So I discharged myself for that family court hearing after the second week of being in hospital. I wasn't meant to leave. They didn't want me to leave, but I had to go to this hearing. I wasn't going to allow him to just get custody of my daughter. I'm, I'm not an unfit parent. In any way, shape or form, my children have a great life. So he was an opportunist. He used that opportunity when I was at my most vulnerable. And actually the family court system and something that I campaign about heavily now allowed him to have that perceived power that, oh, I've got this interim residency and you're now a bad parent you've now got to prove yourself to be a good parent yeah and
2: it was that because he was sort of thinking well you've got this violent guy in your life and i need the children yeah yeah
4: and the thing is but jason had been remanded there was right. no so jason
2: was the name of uh, jason the guy smith that attacked, is, attacked me
4: yeah. yeah so he um he was remanded remanded my daughter's father who served the papers it was as if he thought that I had chosen to be in that situation. And yeah. that, that is actually how the family court see it as well. It's like, you are a victim of do- domestic violence, therefore you are responsible for the violence against you and you are now no longer protecting your children. Right. You put yourself
2: in a dangerous position.
4: Yeah. But even in the, in the actual, in the court case, I said to the judge, well, can I just change what we're talking about and say, okay, if I was crossing the road and got hit by a bus... Can I then no longer be trusted to cross the road because I might get hit by a bus?
2: Yeah, you, know, you put yourself in a dangerous position yeah, by being
4: in the road. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it just is ridiculous. So just simplify what you're saying. It's, I didn't choose to be in that position. And I also didn't know he was a violent offender anyway. The police did. Yeah. His ex-partners did.
2: Yeah. And can I just bring you in here, Laura? Is this a sort of typical thing that you see?
3: This is fairly standard, unfortunately. There are cases and then there are cases. So the the first part is there he said, well, the police knew about all of this. Well, I used to run the intelligence at level two for the Metropolitan Police Service for the violent crime side of business. And unfortunately, people just don't take it seriously, the reports that are coming in. So there's no one looking at Jason Smith, because it's just domestic violence. It's just, it's not even seen as stalking or dangerous. So there is no person joining up. Hang on, there's 10 call outs here. There's 20 call outs, there's 30. There's no one doing that. So it's one thing, even if someone had said that to Zoe, this is his history, well, what's Zoe expected to do with that information? You know, but they didn't say anything, even though this was contained within one police area. So this is just West Midlands. So We're not even bringing in that he travels to other places. And this is why it's so important that there is a register. And why I say the register, there's a violent and sexual offenders register that exists and most of the time sex offenders are put on it and not people like Jason Smith. And we want to see that change to create a cultural change because right now and this has been going on you know for decades the victim is looked at their quest their behavior is questioned then they're the ones told to change. We'll change your address. We'll change your phone. Do this, do that. And no one does and says anything to the perpetrator and they can act with impunity. And I have to say, in these cases, it's like throwing gasoline on a fire and expecting the fire to go out. Right. It's so dangerous. And yet it's just lunacy to think if a victim changes their behavior, somehow that changes the perpetrator's behavior. It's just insanity to yeah, think that. because but even if they go to prison, right,
2: you know, these people need help. They need their behaviours addressed. Because even if someone goes to prison for 20 years, which I'm sure most of them don't go to prison for 20 years. I don't know. You might be able to um, sort of correct me on that, but they will come out. And if their behaviour is not addressed inside or, you know, then what? What's the point? Yeah, How long do people normally get?
3: Well, the the challenge has been even with the stalking law, we've seen very unduly lenient sentences. So you're talking about sometimes days, weeks, um, months, and you can't diagnose anyone in that time. And of course, if there's stalking, it tells you there's a psychological problem. Yeah. So you do need professionals that are trained. You do need longer sentences, and you need. And and for me, I never thought I would say this, but 25 mm. years on from reviewing cases and having worked at New Scotland Yard, and the cases I'm involved with now. There's a gender bias in the system. You know, women are treated as if they are hysterical and non-credible. And yet when a man says something on the the other side, they may report the woman. They're taken seriously. And then you see this epistemic imbalance where their narrative is seen as much more plausible. And everyone looks for the opportunity not to believe the woman. And I, I have to say, I've just seen this deeply rooted and internalized misogyny and it's there, and it women express it too, and men, and we've got to raise the profile around that and hold people to account now twenty five years ago, I never thought I'd be saying that, mm. but actually, you know, if you think about the case in Australia, Hannah Clark and her three children who were set on fire, oh yes, I did by about that. her ex, who she had left, she'd reported him multiple times to police and left to live with her parents in fear that he would kill them. And then he does, and eyewitnesses hear her get out the car saying, he poured petrol on me, and people are trying to get these children out the car. The perpetrator is trying to fight people off from opening the car to get the children out, and then you have a police officer doing a press conference saying, we will keep an open mind about this, this is the worst investigation I've been involved with. We have to look at the basis of, is this a victim of domestic violence, murdered by... The perpetrator, or did something drive him to behave in this way? Oh my god! Were there pressures on him that made him do this?
2: Oh, and at that
3: point, I just had steam coming out my ears, and I actually uh, jumped on you know, a a video blog and and basically posted it because that misogyny is the problem. He doesn't even know that he's being misogynistic by saying that. It's just insane (laughs) that we hold women responsible for men's violence. And the media then eulogised him of he played rugby for NFL. Oh, well, it's a bit like
2: Weinstein, isn't it? You know, um, well, let's just uh, talk about how
3: much he did for the film industry. Right. And blame and shame (laughs) the women. These women who are after money and... All these things that we see are, unfortunately, it's about misogyny. And until we name it and until we make misogyny and hate a hate crime, we're not going to shift culture. That plays into these cases because Zoe was, you know, she says she's not the perfect victim. Well, no one is. They just don't exist. I've worked thousands of cases. No one's the perfect victim. But for some reason, when you're reporting, you're seen as less credible because of your sex. And that has got to change because women, you know, how many women does it take to say someone's a danger and Weinstein 111 cases there's probably even more the same with Bill Cosby to take on one man you know okay these are men with power and influence but why for Zoe is it six why is she victim number 16 why is it that even a police officer who's female saying this guy will kill you need to take it seriously and they just completely ignore what she's saying and that's the culture that we need to change and we need people held to account the police officer in Australia was taken off the case, he probably still doesn't really know what he said wrong. That's the problem, Mm -hmm. you know, that when you're excusing male violence, when you eulogise the man, the headlines in that case were father killed with three children, as if Hannah didn't even matter. She was just a a nothing in her own murder. And she had told the police she was terrified. She got a restraining order. That detective had all that information. I would rather he just said, we're still investigating it. And I cannot tell you any further details until we thoroughly investigate it rather than say, was this a victim of domestic violence or did something drive this man to do this? No one drives someone to murder. It's a choice. No one ruined Weinstein's legacy. He chose to do that. He did it to himself. And until we shift the blame back onto the perpetrator and... The register will help with that because it will focus on Jason Smith's behaviour and it means they have to search all the intelligence databases for everything on Jason Smith. They say to him, you have to change your behaviour. If you get in a new relationship, you have to tell us. They place positive obligations on him rather than say to Zoe, change your house, mm. change your phone, stop yeah. living, don't go out your house. Yeah. Why are any of those things going to impact him? How long was he sentenced to and where
2: are you up to now with it?
4: So he got... Ten years plus four on licence, right, um, and it was so ten years. So
2: he would serve five in custody or well, a tariff of ten. Yeah, well,
4: I don't understand because at the at the time of sentencing, they said he had he was one of the first to get the new extended sentences, right, which meant he would do a minimum of ten
2: years. So, what's your understanding of what an extended sentence is?
4: So, from what. I remember being told at the time it was he was getting 10 years, he was getting 10 years in, incarcerated plus four on license. And then when he got to the end of the 10 years, he would go in front of a parole board. Um, and then if he was deemed safe or not dangerous, then, you know, it was potential he would be released, but he would be released on license for those four years.
2: Okay. But what actually happened was he served. A few years and then someone just decided to move him into open conditions which is not the way it should work is exactly. that right yeah, absolutely that yeah
3: well the first three years of his sentence like he tried to get leave to appeal yeah the first time then second time he then wrote to myself and various other people saying zoe was the problem so he never admitted at any point that the responsibility resided with him which mm-hmm. is one of the conditions and then someone makes a decision obviously from speaking to him yeah For what reason? Why did they have that discussion prematurely? And where's the risk assessment? What did that look like to make that decision? It feels very much like war boys taking something in isolation. And with someone like Smith, he's charming. And it sounds like people got hoodwinked. Yeah. When it wasn't even a mandatory duty for them to consider him being released early And that's the problem. That's why I call it a a chasm in the system. Why are people just making arbitrary decisions? Why wasn't it seen as serious what he did to Zoe? He's never accepted uh, responsibility for it. So why was he even being considered? And then why did he get moved? And Zoe finds out about it after the fact. I mean, it's just outrageous. Every step is just outrageous. And the fact she's been so public about it, well, there are many victims who never speak out, but someone could have just Googled and seen everything that was said, and yet they still make those decisions.
2: So at the moment, he's still in prison.
4: Still in prison. However, lots of things have happened since he got remanded. I mean, while he was on remand, and this is how I came in contact with Laura and Paladin, was he was calling me from prison with a phone that was smuggled into the prison and started off saying, baby, you fell, I was trying to help you. Yet again, like the delusion. Yeah, Yeah, so I was like, "Uh, really? Are you really going to pull this? You know, I can't believe that you're even calling me. Then he changed because he realised that, well, I wasn't going to fall for that. And then it was like, well, my house is going to get burnt down or, you know, I've met people in here that know people that can come and pay you a visit, Zoe. And when I reported that to the police, they said, don't answer your phone. I said, but isn't that witness <laughs> intimidation? God. How are you gonna get him for witness intimidation? And no one
2: thought it would be good to call the prison and have a word with the governor and make sure that that was shut down or that he had an illegal phone in prison. Yeah. Oh my God.
4: So he made many calls. Some of them I answered, some of them I didn't. If I had a withheld number, I didn't Depending on whether I could take the call. Uh, so there was two calls, I made two statements um, that I made two statements for. And then another time when he called, he called, didn't withhold the number. So I contacted DC Dadry, who was the CID lady on the, on the case and told her this is the number that he's called off. And they interviewed him and he said, oh, she's trying to stitch me up. She's driven to near the prison and made the calls. Well, anyway, he'd actually made a call to one of his family members, so we had him for the witness intimidation. But had I not been proactive around that, they wouldn't have even collected that information. And that, you know, so there was witness intimidation afterwards. He did get six months for the witness intimidation. He also got six months for the criminal damage to my door, as well as the 14 years for GBH section 18.
2: Okay. And you've had news recently, haven't you, that he might be being moved to open conditions, which is when people move from. The more secure prisons into open prisons where they can, I know you know this, but yeah. for the benefits of our listeners where people are in prison, but they're going out to work because usually at the end of people's sentences, they go there to try and get used to being out yeah. in the community more. Yep. Yeah. when did you get a call to say that that was happening because that strikes me as quite odd
4: well importantly before that there was there's there's also been two appeals it's not like he's shown any remorse right
2: hasn't sunk in the yeah so he's appealed
4: he immediately appealed the sentence saying that it was too long then he's appealed again on the grounds that I had hypnotherapy which makes no difference and both of them weren't successful and then last year I had two offender managers turn up at my house and say oh we're just coming round to let you know that we're looking to put him into open conditions I let them talk and I was like okay yeah I understand that you've got to rehabilitate and all the rest of it and then the offender management one of them gave me his email address and then obviously I they've gone away I've digested the information because I'll always let them talk and then I basically let rip and said that's absolutely not happening are you serious you know I can't believe you're even considering this like I thought I had a certain amount of time to move or get away from the area or put certain protection measures around myself however you're now telling me that he can go on day release no basically so you know I spoke to Laura again about what I should do and I wrote to Robert Buckland
2: yeah the Justice Secretary
4: yeah and he came back, which was really useful, actually, wasn't it? Well,
3: just to say, he was actually on the all-party stalking law reform campaign. So Robert Buckland is very aware of stalking and the nature of serial stalkers. So, yes, he was very transparent in terms of the decision-making of of what had gone on, Mm. which was helpful to know that he had already been moved to this open prison. So
4: the police had actually come out to say that this is something they are going to do, but they had actually already put him in open conditions.
3: Right. It's probably worth just mentioning that having that information and knowing that he had already been moved put Zoe and her children at risk because he was going back to his family address, which was close to Zoe's. And this is exactly why victims need to be brought into the process and told about what's happening so that they can make decisions for their own safety.
2: Absolutely. And where does the victims commissioner come into this? The victims code, you know, these things that we hear about that um, ministers and people will talk about when a high profile thing happens. It's like, well, we've got this, we've got that. And it's like, how much did that help you?
4: I didn't know anything about it. Right. And, I, you know, I sit on the victim and witness um, engagement group. They're doing this whole reform piece. And I sat in a meeting the other day and they said, oh, we've got the victim's code. And I said, oh, excuse me, because everybody around the table is a professional. Apart from me, I'm the only survivor on the, in the group, which I'm glad I am, actually, mm. because you know, everybody else is just assuming. And I said, what's the victim's code? And they were like, pardon? And I said,
2: well, I've never even heard of it well you should have been given that. (laughs) This is what what annoys me so much when you know actual reality and what actually goes on which is so important and it just proves why it's so important to have people like you who've experienced these things there but I do find it terrifying how people who haven't been victims really can't put themselves in the victim's shoes no matter how much they say they can you know because that to me is just like
3: been so that's why it's so important to have trained specialists the paladin advocates you know the other thing just to jump in and say about what happened in jason smith going to prison and then him calling zoe was zoe called his dad A do you want text- to say something about yeah. that or text his dad yeah I've- i
4: sent two text messages to his dad while he was threatening me from inside prison, I sent two text messages to his dad, one to his sister saying, look, I don't want anything to do with him or you, any of you, leave me alone. I mean, it was actually Christmas Eve that I sent them. And they reported me to the police. I then got a call on a Friday evening to say, and bearing in mind I'm at home with my two children, just gone through what I've gone through, nine o'clock at night on a Friday, I get a phone call from a police officer saying you've sent messages to the smith family you do realize that you're you know you could be up for a harassment we want oh to we want to interview you it's a voluntary interview i was like okay so it, <laughs> oh. <laughs> if it's a voluntary interview then i'm not going to bother what happens if i don't come and he said well you'll get arrested i said well it's not voluntary then is it oh i said okay God. what's your number so that happened And then I made the complaint. The inspector came out to see me and he said, oh, well, what do you want to happen, Zoe? Do you want him to lose his job? And I said, look, I don't want him to lose his job, but there is a serious issue in training here, clearly, because he's, did he not look at my file? Did he he, Do you not look at what's going on in somebody's case before you make a phone call like that? And then I spoke to Laura and I said, look, I've had the, the, you know, the police have contacted me. I'm just going to go. They want me to go in for the interview on Sunday, which, conveniently they're going to choose a Sunday because how would I get a solicitor? And I, but I wasn't even thinking like that anyway. I just thought, oh, well, I'll go and just have the interview. You know, I haven't done anything wrong. I've just sent two text messages to his dad and one to his sister.
2: Yeah, so saying I'd what? like not to be I'd like not contacted to be- yeah. illegally by a guy who's intimidating me from prison and why isn't anyone yeah. caring about this? Yeah,
4: yeah, because yeah. I'm told to just not answer my phone. Why don't they not answer their text, you no. know? Why is it completely different one way to the other? And Laura said, absolutely do not go and have that interview on your own. So you must have legal representation. So you sent a solicitor. And I think he actually came from somewhere up north on a Sunday. Um, drove yeah, drove to Coventry.
2: Where does that sort of leave us now? And what are your priorities from the sort of paladin point of view on how we help to move things forward and how we make sure that Um, The police are really understanding this and that ministers, it sounds like Robert Buckland was responsive Mm. um, to your letter, which is great. Um, But how do we help to move things forward on this?
3: I mean, firstly, the epistemic imbalance of of the the police response, treating Zoe as a suspect, just of two innocuous text messages trying to stop a dangerous offender who tried to kill her from contacting her, and then they treat her as the perpetrator. That tells you about misogyny and the gender bias. Yeah. Why didn't they do that to Jason Smith when Zoe was calling? Yeah. That tells you that there's a major problem in the way that people view were viewing Zoe and people were viewing him. And that is the gender bias. And fortunately, that got cleared up, but Zoe had to have legal representation. So I would say, to victims, don't just think that people will make the right decisions and don't Mm. just go in there without having an advocate with you. I mean, for Paladin, that's really, you know, the central key point of the advocate's work, to be the voice of the victim throughout the system, from beginning to end, to go to court with them. To catch these things that happen and sometimes professionals do things in the right with the right intention, but they can put someone at risk. They can put someone like Zoe even more at risk. So that's Paladin's bread and butter work. And we've got great advice on the website. Um, You know, we train a lot of people as well. But there's no funding. You know, we have to raise the funding to pay for the advocates. We've got young people advocates because we know that young people are disproportionately affected. Yeah. So there's no
2: statutory funding from the government for what you're doing.
3: There's not. Um, You know, we've got the domestic abuse bill, which is going through at the moment. And the prime minister has said this is a priority. Nothing on stalking in it on the most dangerous types of perpetrators there's nothing on stalking in it and we've been trying to get Mm. the register in it you know if you keep just dealing with the victims and not dealing with the the problem well Mm. now they've said they're going to put 10 million into um working on perpetrators and we're awaiting the detail of that but again it's not paladin's work to work with the perpetrators but we lobby to ensure that probation court staff judges magistrates are trained but Judges and magistrates still aren't trained no. in stalking. So the work continues on of it's great to do something around domestic abuse, but you have to have key change that really does impact a survivor on the front line and that it's not just a tweak of a definition. And my fear, Edwina, is that we're constantly tweaking around the margins and not dealing with the root of the problem.
2: Absolutely.
3: And that's the perpetrators who also need help, by the way, you know, that they need to be properly assessed. They're being failed when they're not being properly assessed and triaged and diagnosed. Mm -hmm. You know, and some of them are treatable. They're not homogenous as a group. So there needs to be a focus on them because they are the problem. And we need to really understand male violence and that these cases can and do escalate to murder and women become footnotes in their own murder. And, And thank goodness that's not what happened to zoe but the legacy lives on we're still fighting in 2020 mm. to keep a dangerous person in prison which is where he should be so that's a key part of paladin's work as well advocating on behalf of zoe and zoe feels so strongly about educating professionals but it's really if if you're a dad or a mom or a brother or a sister or a best mate educate yourself go on paladin's website because you never know when your daughter or your best friend or someone that you care about is going to go through this
2: absolutely and hopefully um well it would be great to have you both back on the podcast maybe as we track the progression of the domestic Mm. abuse bill to see what happens with that because i think it would be interesting to see the sort of the path that it takes and hopefully try and keep the pressure up to you know, fill the gaps.
3: I mean, the register is something, there's a system that already exists. We're asking for serial stalkers and domestic violence offenders to be included within that. We're not asking for something new to be created or a siloed database. We're asking for the systems that are in place to be used. And we're asking for police to have a proactive obligation on them, that let's say Zoe goes into tomorrow and reports, that they then have a duty on them to check all the intelligence systems yeah. to see what's held about Jason Smith. Yeah. And then they have a duty to tell Zoe about that. Well, that exists in the disclosure scheme. Yeah. So that's already there. But it shouldn't just be incumbent upon Zoe to then do something with that information. It has to be incumbent on the professionals that they have a multi-agency meeting and they problem solve how they're going to tackle Jason Smith. And it's not just left up to Zoe. Now she's got this information. There's 16 women before me, but you're not doing anything about him. You yeah. know, the irony is, having worked in the police for a decade, we do. Mm-hmm. The police do it with prolific robbers, robbers. They do it with prolific burglars. They've been doing it with terrorism and terrorists. You can do it. It's just it hasn't been a priority until Mm. leaders are told that you must do it. It's an obligation. Women are being murdered until people care about that. It ain't going to change.
2: So for me, sort of reflecting on talking to Zoe and Laura, it's just enormous frustration, I guess, sort of having worked in this world and seen time and time again that violence against women and girls does appear to not really sit at the top of people's agendas. And and I'm always left wondering why. You know, we heard from Laura. She worked in the police. She's seen it from the inside. It's not just us looking in. You know, what happened to Zoe, the sort of constant, repeated failures? She was victim number 16 Will there be victims 17, 18, 19, 20? How many women have to die before people really start taking this seriously? I don't think it's good enough and I think there's a long way to go. So well done to Paladin for keeping the pressure up, but we all need to do more and we all need to do better.
4: Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would
1: subscribe. Also, rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is co-produced for One Small Thing by the London Podcast Company and Pencil Agency. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.